also one Sunday at the end of March, near the end of a two-month period in which I had sat two weeks of retreat for myself and taught another week of retreat on the East Coast. And I was in the process of teaching the March retreat at Spirit Rock And that afternoon, that Sunday afternoon, I found myself in Point Reyes with a friend. And we had just had a long beach walk with her two dogs. And we were having a great conversation. Lots of fun. I was eating a steak soon to be followed by pie and ice cream. And best of all, there was a fabulous bluegrass band which made my dancing feet, because I love to dance, very itchy. So at some point I paused because it didn't exactly fit with what I'd been doing. It was like, what? What does this the steak and the pie and the music and all of that have to do with what I had been doing for those two months. All that stillness of the heart and the mind, both the stillness that arrived and that which didn't, the stillness of the land, the students that I was still working with, who, while I was eating steak and pie and ice cream, were back sipping tea and having whatever one has for the evening meal, soup probably, and really diligently working hard to wake up. I was really happy. I was really happy. I was so happy. I was joyful even. And it felt like I was delighting in all of my senses. And then I remembered Jack Cornfield, in my early years of practice, used to say, you know, practice is just like going to Las Vegas. You have to be present to win. (laughs) And what I knew was I was very present. I was really there. I knew it was impermanent. It wasn't going to last. The stake was disappearing minute by minute. I knew that they were sense experiences, that the Vedana was pleasant, for the moment anyway. And I actually was aware, as I you know, reflected on it, that I wasn't trying to hold on. I wasn't trying to make it last. You know, it just was there. So you haven't been here all that long, really, although it probably seems like a long time at this point. And um, probably for some of you, this sounds like, hmm, that would be pretty good. Steak, pie, although those bars tonight were pretty good. Mm -hmm. You know, music, we haven't had much music, that kind of thing. And some of you who are sort of sinking more deeply into the quiet, maybe are of a little more ascetic mind anyway, are thinking, oh no, you know, that's, that's not such a good idea. And not only that, we're going to go out there and there's going to be too much noise and too much music and too many people. You get little whiffs of it around here on Memorial Day weekend just with the traffic up and down the road, you've probably noticed. 
So life outside the retreat is almost here. At this time, tomorrow night, most of you will be in your homes with your families or friends or your dog or your cat, beginning to pick up the threads of your everyday existence. And the question always comes at the end of a retreat. It doesn't matter how long or how short the retreat is. It doesn't even matter how many times you've done it. It's what's it going to be like when I go back out there? What will it be like? And will anything be different? You know, have I... Have I changed? Has something shifted inside of me? Will it be better? And to the extent that maybe there's some sense that you've begun to wake up a little bit more, you know, will you be able to sustain that? Will you stay awake? So Wendell Berry, in another poem called The Spiritual Journey, says this. He says, And the world cannot be discovered by a journey of miles, no matter how long, but only by a spiritual journey, a journey of one inch, very arduous and humbling and joyful, by which we arrive at the ground at our feet and learn to be at home. So that's really the question, isn't it? Is how... How do we learn to be at home? How do we learn to be awake in our everyday lives? Will we, you know, you all settled in pretty nicely after the first day or so of the retreat. And will there be that same settling in process as you go home? Will you be comfortable? Will you be comfortable? One way to think about it is that actually tomorrow is the first day of the rest of the retreat. Mm-hmm. So you've had, you know, you've had six days here, five nights, six days, and you will have at least another six days of retreat because that's kind of how it works. Is there's always the that part that comes after, and it's just as much a part of the process as the being here and, in fact, probably the six days before the retreat while you were getting ready to come here. I've often thought, as we get to the end of retreat, it might be helpful for all of us to think about, maybe you're pregnant. (laughs) Maybe you're pregnant. You know, all of you, guys, old people, young people, married, single... And there's something in there that's beginning to grow. And you don't know when it's going to get born. And you don't know what it is that's going to get born. That's a very interesting question. So there's a piece of the Metta Sutta that puzzled me for a long time as I used to chant it. And I'd get to this last verse of it and I'd think, what, 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 what? You know, after all this lovely stuff about, you know, being friendly with all beings and extending upwards to the skies and downwards to the ground. And, and so this verse says, By not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense desires, is not born again into this world. 
So I think there's a lot in this verse that's actually helpful in terms of how do we live our lives when we go out to the world. So what does it mean? What does this mean for us not to have fixed views, not to be born again into the world of suffering? When we inhabit the Dharma world, and you all now inhabit the Dharma world, we often talk about there being two truths about reality. There's the conventional world of time and space, of names and jobs and addresses and political parties and opinions and all of that kind of thing. And then there's the ultimate realm, the absolute, about which almost nothing can be said because how can we say anything about the absolute? I'm very fond of a a particular quote from the um, Udana cycle of suttas. It says, There is that sphere of being where there is no earth, no water, no fire, nor wind. No experience of infinity of space, of infinity of consciousness, of no thingness, or even of neither perception nor non-perception. Here there is neither this world nor another world, neither moon nor sun. This sphere of being I call it, I call neither a coming nor a going nor a staying still, neither a dying nor a reappearance. It has no basis no evolution, and no support. It is the end of dukkha. So that's a pretty amazing, like, what? 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 What is that even? I mean, I'm not sure. I certainly don't think I know exactly what he's saying. But I do know that it's pointing in a particular direction towards something that is beyond the conventional sense of knowing. And so the notion is we need to hold both of these. You know. We need to <laughs> hold the conventional reality, time and space, and the absolute reality. And, and so the art of practice and of living is how to create the bridge. How do we connect our fixed views of time and space and our theories and our opinions with that which we know of the ultimate or of Nibbana? So this place about fixed views is really interesting to me. I think it's very, very important. That place where we have very definite ideas about things and people, what they are, who they are, what needs to be done, that kind of thing. And it's probably true that most of you have some fixed views about what you're going home to tomorrow. You know, you have some definite Ideas about what's going to be there and how people are going to be. And some of you have probably been creating, you know, Bob's been talking about the epic trilogy, you know, so that the trilogy of what happens on, you know, at four o'clock tomorrow afternoon and the rest of the week and the rest of the summer. And we create very elaborate novels and stories in our minds, even while we're sitting here. Or maybe you've even created some views about exactly what's going to happen tomorrow. It's, it's Memorial Day, right? So you might have plans about which way you're going to drive home 
And are you going to go to the barbecue tomorrow night or not? And if you're going to go to the barbecue, where will you buy your food? You know, should you go to Whole Foods? No, that's kind of big and busy. And I'm going to be sensitive and quiet after the retreat. So maybe I should go to New Leaf. You know, or better yet, you know, maybe the the corner grocery. Or no, maybe that's too much. Maybe I won't go at all. I'll just stay at home and I'll meditate some more. And, <laughs> and, and then you all know, you know, that there's tasks to be done and there's the things that you put aside before you went on the retreat knowing that you'd be home on Monday night. And, and then maybe there's the story about what are you going to say to your friend who says to you, how was your retreat? What did you do? <laughs> what did you do on your retreat? <laughs> or maybe you're going home <clears throat> and you've decided now you know, really know what practice is. You know, practice is what we've done here. It's on the cushion, 45 minutes of sitting, 45 minutes of walking. <laughs> That's what a practice looks like it only happens in 45 minute blocks and it only happens when the mind is still there's a wonderful story about Ajahn Sumedho that I really love Ajahn Sumedho was a very young monk and he really loved to meditate and there's a lot of stories that some of which he tells on himself about all his different ways that he tried meditating including standing on his head for a while um, but in this particular case, he was at the monastery with Ajahn Chah, and he was just meditating up a storm. And one day, he was asked to be part of a work party, building a road. <laughs> and he didn't like that idea because he wanted to meditate. So he went off to see Ajahn Chah, and he said, you know... Ajahn, I really would like to be let off the work detail because it really is going to interfere with my practice. And what I'd like to do is I'd like to stay in my kuti and meditate. And, you know, he said, this this work, this isn't going to help the holy life at all. Ajahn Chah was a fairly wily guy. And he said, yes, he, that would be all right. But he wanted to announce it to the other monks. And they let them know that he had given Sumedho permission to meditate while they were working on the road. And that that would be all right. So the next day, Ajahn Sumedho was, who probably wasn't an Ajahn in those days, Venerable Sumedho, was in his kuti doing his meditation and out there were all the other monks, including Ajahn Chah, working on the road. <laughs> no, it didn't feel really great. And the second day, there was Ajahn Sumedho sitting in his kuti, and out there were all the monks with Ajahn Chah, and it felt really terrible. And the third day, he joined the work crew. Mm-hmm. So Ajahn Shah really believed that one's whole life is practice. It's all practice. Sitting on the cushion, walking back and forth, the work that one does, the interpersonal relationships, and that he really wanted to kind of poke a hole in the very fixed view that the Venerable Sumedho 
had about what is it that is practice, what really counts. So, you know, tomorrow the other thing that's going to happen is at some point in the morning we'll do a little talking and when it's lunchtime we'll um, have some more conversation over lunch and you're going to find out a little bit more about each other. And probably, even in a retreat this short, you may have some stories about who this person is or that person is and what they're like. I had a really strong Vipassana romance once when I was on a retreat uh, with a guy. This is at IMS, so there the women sit on one side and the men sit on the other. So he was over there. He was really cute. He was a little casual about making eye contact. But obviously, since I saw that, I probably was making a little eye contact myself. And then at at some point, he um, left for me on the noteboard. This is why we ask you not to write notes. (laughs) A little little piece, twist of paper that had two chocolate-covered espresso beans in it. And I knew it was true love. (laughs) And, you know, it it kind of cooled off after a while. And um, my teacher was Joseph Goldstein at that point. He really worked on me to notice the nature of desire. So I wasn't quite so, so caught by the end of the retreat. So at the very end of the retreat, they had... And we had a chance to talk with the people who were sitting right near us. So I was in this circle of about six women. Every one of them had had a Vipassana romance with the same man. (laughs) Every one of them. So that was a little shocking. (laughs) He was two-timing me or something. (laughs) And then, of course, I got to talk to him. And was he the man that I thought he was? No, he's a perfectly fine man, but he wasn't very interesting to me. And, you know, so it's like that. You know, so we don't know, do we? And we create such strong stories about who someone is. And the retreat is really such a good place to begin to look at that. And in our normal lives of time and space, in that relative world, we have lots of fixed views about the people we share our lives with. And a relationship is the perfect place in which to think you know who the other person is. And it's also the perfect place to lose some of those views. You know, my husband, Russell, and I, have done quite a bit of work over the years. Some of you have done some of it with us. Um, Working on using our intimate relationship as spiritual practice. And so it it requires, you know, quite a bit of work verbally back and forth and a lot of attention, a lot of honoring the, the relationship. And I am constantly surprised 
by this man that I'm married to, you know? And he is always showing me where I am not waked up yet. So we do the practice, a practice of counsel, a practice of wise speech, um, where we're really working at taking the rough places seriously. And, and it's a practice of surrendering over and over to what's best for the relationship itself, which can become a practice of renunciation, actually, because sometimes what's best for the relationship is not what I want or it's not what he wants. And it helps enormously to begin to realize that even I've been married to this man for almost 33 years. Pretty wonderful. It is 33 years, actually. It's just 33 years. And I have no idea who he really is. I don't. You know, not in this very present moment. A few weeks ago, we'd been to an evening event down in Hilo, not far from where we live, on the Big Island, and um, we got out at about 11.30 at night and got back. It had, rain, it had been raining and raining. I don't want to make you jealous, but it had been raining and raining. <laughs> and we got back to our car, and we discovered we'd left the headlights on. And the battery was dead, and it was 11.30 at night. And I found out something I never really had registered before. You're probably going to wonder, where has she been? But I watched how we both dealt with the reality of the dead battery at 11.30 at night. He's totally introverted. Totally introverted. He pulled in, he curled up in the front seat of the car, and he glowered. And I don't know what what his plan was. I never did. (laughs) And I, who am way more extroverted started hunting around for who could help us. The first people I accosted were a group of Japanese tourists. They never even understood what I wanted. But then I finally found a a policeman, actually, who was directing traffic, and pretty soon along came a cop SUV with the blue light on top, and they had, you know, uh, battery chargers, and we were fine. So you don't know, right? You don't know. You're sitting down to dinner with your best beloved Who's coming to the table? <laughs> Who's coming to the table? And it's really interesting to make that a practice, to wonder who's there tonight. Might be somebody you've never seen before, to be really curious. And we also do the same thing for ourselves. We all have very fixed views about who we are. Remember back on the first day or so, and Bob referred to that wonderful instruction for practice that says there's nothing to do and there's nowhere to go. And the last one, which everybody kind of goes about, is there's no one that you have to be. You don't have to be you. You know, all of you, you look around the room, do you know who's a doctor, who's a teacher, who's a lawyer, who's a massage therapist, who's unemployed? You don't know, do you? You may know a few, but you don't know a lot of them. And so that identity thing that we feel is so huge, you, know, you, you left it back there in Soquel someplace, and you came here just to be without that. And we get really locked into our personalities. We so often say, I am a person who... I am a person who does this, eats that, wears only this, drives only that, 
whatever it is that you are a person who. And when we're here on the retreat, that begins to loosen up a little bit and you begin to see what this personality thing is doing. What it's doing again. You know, sometimes, sometimes for me, it's been so helpful to, every now and then, you know, I'm sitting or I'm on retreat or now sometimes in everyday life as well. And, and it's like I stand back and I go, oh my God, look at that Mary Grace Orr person. She's doing it again. You know, she's obsessed with this or anxious about that. And sometimes I can even get to the, oh, poor thing. You know, she's so stuck. It's so helpful. Sometimes she's kind of cute. She's a little dumb, but she's kind of cute, you know. In the time and space world, we're supposed to know all of that, or at least that's what we think, is to get to know who we are, know your zip code, know your phone number, and have answers and have it all figured out. And we don't. We don't know. We don't. I love the Zen world of koans. You know, the, the Zen koans are wonderful stories that just make the mind collapse because there's no rational answer. You know, what's, you know, you all know the things like, what's the sound of one hand clapping? You know, or what was your, what is your face before you were born? What, what is your face before you were, you know, it doesn't, even the tenses don't make sense. And life offers koans. Life offers so many places where that that fixed view doesn't work. You know, an illness strikes and everything changes. That day when you go to the doctor and you get the diagnosis and you were going this way and now you're going that way. It knocks your socks off. It's astounding. And it's not fair. I've had several conversations with different people so don't any of you think I'm talking about you, where this not fair thing came up. It is not fair. It isn't. You know, if you get that diagnosis, why you? I don't know. And the death koan, you know, which often comes way too soon. Or sometimes it's just simple, like you're in a job, you're kind of stuck in it for some reason or another, and there's the weird boss who's really, really difficult that somehow you have to live with. And you can't make rational sense of who they are or how they are or why they're doing what they're doing. And it's a koan. One of the biggest koans in my life <clears throat> has been the practice of going to Burning Man. <laughs> And my husband's a longtime burner. He's gone for 16 years, or this will be his 16th year. And I did not go for 11 of those 16 years. I stayed home and dug in my heels and complained and got really, really scared about what might happen there. But what was interesting was after a while, I got tired of being scared, actually. And I decided that I should go. So I put some purple in my hair. That was the first time I ever did it. And I went. <clears throat> and each day that first year, you know, I'd wake up in the morning and I'd lie there and i think, 
because the party was still going on, you know, at 7 o'clock in the morning. And I'd lie there and I'd think, okay, this is it, I'm going home. Because he had promised me he would take me to the airport in Reno and put me on the airplane. I'm going home today. And, you know, each day I was still there at the end of the day. I somehow never got around to leaving. And I hated it, and I loved it, and I was confused by it. And finally, one day, I actually said to myself, the thought went through, it was one of those really useful thoughts, this is a koan. I cannot make sense of what goes on here. I still can't make sense of what goes on here. And I certainly can't make sense of what I, a Buddhist meditation teacher, you know, growing up in New England, a little mm, on occasion, was doing there. But once I let it be a koan, it became much easier. Because I didn't have to figure it out. It's still a koan. I'm going again this year. It'll be my fifth year. And if I ever find out why I'm there, I'll let you know. But I don't know. And it's brought a lot of gifts, you know, because what's true is something in me opened up as I lived with the koan, which is how koan practice works, even classical koan practice in the Zen world. You sit with it, and after a while, in some way that you can't make sense out of, something shifts inside of you. And one of the great blessings was that the purple obviously remained, and I did it partly because I found that it helped me to let go of fixed views of who I was in the world. And I found that other people also didn't have those fixed views anymore. I'm not an invisible old lady. And any of you who are over 60 know what it is to be an invisible old lady because old women in our culture are pretty invisible. And I totally suggest that you put some color in your hair (laughs) because it immediately makes you accessible. Somebody said to me once, it's like you're holding the puppy. And I said, "Uh uh-uh, I'm not holding the puppy. I am the puppy. (laughs) So not too long ago, I was in Texas where my daughter lives in the supermarket, not too far from Dallas. So it's pretty conservative Texas. Getting, you know, milk and juice and stuff. And this guy comes up and he's, he's kind of, you know, looks like he's been around the block a few times, <laughs> denim, and looks like maybe he'd been working or something like that. Kind of grizzled. Not the sort of person that I would normally talk to. And I just noticed he picked up something and he started to walk away. And then I turned around and he was coming toward me and he was just laughing. And he said, it's so wonderful. I just love it. It's really great that you do that. And then we had a conversation. I would never have talked to this man. I wouldn't have. He wouldn't have talked to me. But because we did something a little different that cracked open those views, we could make a connection. And I think that's a, you know, to find ways to do that is so important in our everyday lives. Who are you? There's so many Zen koans where that question comes. Who are you? And one of the best answers is, I haven't got a clue. I haven't got a clue. And not only that, you don't need to have a clue. 
You don't need to know ahead of time who the other person is, and you don't actually even need to know ahead of time who you are. You know, you, you'll get home, you, you will remember your phone number and your zip code and, and all of those things, because we do. But there's a, a, a deep place inside where you do not have to know in a very concrete exactly who you are every minute of the day. You know, there's that, that wonderful quote uh, from Rilke that, um, where he says, Do not now seek answers which cannot be given you because you would not be able to live them. And the point is to live everything Live the questions now. Perhaps you will then gradually, without noticing it, live along some distant day into the answer. So by not holding to fixed views, the sutta says, by not holding to fixed views, by not holding to fixed views, we can be here in this very present moment. We can meet it just as it is, which is the kindest and most compassionate thing that we can possibly do. Now, you've probably had some moments like that when you've been here, where you've met a moment without a story about what exactly it was going to be. And it was just itself. And maybe you've seen things, maybe you've seen things you've never seen before, Or maybe you've seen things either in yourself or outside of yourself that you're seeing in a very different way because we're not quite so locked into our story. There's a a great poem from Robert Bly called Things to Think. He says, Think in ways you've never thought before. If the phone rings... Think of it as carrying a message larger than anything you've ever heard, vaster than a hundred lines of Yeats. Think that someone may bring a bear to your door, maybe wounded and deranged. (laughs) Or think that a moose has risen out of the lake and he's carrying on his antlers a child of your own whom you've never seen. (laughs) When someone knocks on the door, think that he's about to give you something large, tell you you're forgiven, or that it's not necessary to work all the time, or it's been decided if you lie down, no one will die. So the sutta goes on to say, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, is not born again into this world. So when we have this clarity of vision, when we're not locked into those views, we see more clearly. The word vipassana actually means to see clearly. You know, And when we see clearly, when we see the most clearly, we are not caught in greed or hatred or delusion. And when we are not caught in greed or hatred and delusion, we do not create more suffering for ourselves or others. We are not born again into the world of suffering. Bob has referred to it a number of times in his talk last night and again this morning that one of the best definitions 
of awakening or nibbana, that one of the easiest ones to work with is that it's a place of no greed, no hatred, and no delusion. And that when we practice those kinds of things, we, we step into more and more freedom. And that it's possible to have moments. It is possible to have moments of freedom, moments of Nibbana, where it's like, oh, look at that. And, and, and it may be very fleeting, but we get to taste what freedom is like and what happens when we aren't caught with those. So, staying connected to that place of no greed or no hatred or no delusion the place of Nibbana, which is the place that the Uddhana Sutta was, was referring to, you know, the, all, the, all the not infinity and not this and not that, we, that's not understandable by ordinary means. But it's very important to remember as we deal with the relative that the absolute is also there. On a recent retreat, it was actually the March retreat, um, one of the people I worked with gave me permission to share this intention that she created towards the end of her retreat. And she wrote, May my relationship to the relative world flow from my confidence and grounding in the wisdom and compassion of absolute awareness. Mm-hmm. Mm. So, you know, it's a great little intention. May my relationship, may our relationship to the relative world flow from our confidence and grounding, whatever whatever confidence and grounding you've developed in the wisdom and compassion of absolute awareness. So there's a teaching that I love and often have come to at the end of retreat. Um, and it talks about how to work when the mind is consumed with issues of time and space and it's overwhelmed by our own views and by those of others and it's not, not particularly at all connected to the absolute. And this teaching says there is a place where you can rest the mind. And it was given by the Buddha to a disciple who was asking about where, where can I rest my mind, you know, once the teachings have been heard. So... These are for you because you are the dear noble disciples and you've been patiently sitting here hearing these teachings for these last several days and here's where you can rest your mind as you go back to the world. And the Buddha says, this is the place where you can live evenly amidst an uneven generation and dwell unafflicted amidst an afflicted generation. So these are the six places the Buddha, the Dharma, the Sangha, your own virtue, your own generosity, and the devas. So the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha, that seems pretty obvious, right? These are the three jewels, they're the three refuges, and we invoked them when we chanted the refuges the first night of the retreat, refuge in that which is awake, and and that which is true, the teachings, and the community, and some of you may use the refuges regularly in your 
practice at home. And you may remember that you know the Buddha described himself as awake, and that's how he identified um, in one instance when he was asked who he was. And that's what you've been doing here. Every time you come in to sit and you work really hard to sustain your gaze on the present moment, moment after moment after moment, what's happening, the breath, the itch, the sadness, the wandering mind, the breath again, one moment after another, trying to wake up to what is. And you're beginning to notice the awareness that is there, that is the awakeness, that just sees. Just it's not interesting if you notice that awareness itself doesn't have views, it doesn't have commentary, it's just aware. Just takes it in, you know. That the eye of the Buddha is that which sees what is. There's a poem from Galway Canal. He says, whatever what is is, is what I want. Only that, but that. Mm-hmm. Only that, but that. So the eye of the Buddha that sees, what the Buddha sees is the Dharma. that sees the truth. And it, the, that awareness begins to see how we create suffering. And it sees all the steps that lead to the repeated cycles of suffering, and it sees that there can be an ending to suffering. We talked about all of that the other night, and we see that we can meet our suffering in a, in a new way, and that as we do that, then the steps toward freedom become available. The eye of awakening sees that whole eightfold path of wise view and wise intention, wise speech and action and livelihood, wise effort and mindfulness and concentration. And so it sees that quite clearly. And with that eye of awareness and and looking and seeing the Dharma, we investigate our experience and we check out the teachings. And I can't say that often enough, that these teachings are intended for you to check out and find out, does it really work? Is what the Buddha said really true? Now find out for yourself. Don't <coughs> trust all those books. Don't trust us. You know, we're not all that trustworthy. You need to find out for yourself. <clears throat> and what I can tell you, because it gets a little annoying sometimes, is that repeatedly I find out that the Buddha was right. Over and over and over again. You know, sometimes you kind of hope maybe he's wrong this time. But not so. I haven't found it yet. Clinging to anything at all will lead to all kinds of suffering. And then, of course, one of the places you can rest your mind is with the community of people who see that there is awakening and who are following the path. And we so much need each other. We really need each other. You know, if you look around this room... And, you know, and the people who have been sitting right around you. And I'm sure even on a pretty short retreat like this one, you're aware of how much we support each other on a retreat like this. How much it helps 
you know, when you come in, maybe you're a little later than a couple of people, and they're already sitting there so still, because you all look fabulously still. (laughs) No matter what's going on in there, it looks quiet. And just that attempt to be quiet, that stillness of the body, supports your neighbors and your friends. It's really astounding how that works. And, and, or you go outside, and, and I've loved this as I've moved around the place in the last few days. You know, just seeing people walking back and forth so slowly, so carefully, so mindfully. And once in a while I'll pause and just watch someone pick up their foot and move it forward so slowly. And then, ah, oh, you know, it's like a whole retreat just in that one step. It's so amazing. And these moments really inspire us and open our hearts. And, you know, some of you will be going to places that are somewhat distant. And and my guess is we'll miss each other, you know. Next week, sometime when I'm back in Hawaii, I'll probably go, oh, I wonder what's happening to everybody. Are they okay? You know, how was the reentry? All that kind of thing. It's so important to have Sangha, and it's so wonderful that many of you do practice together, and next week you'll be seeing each other at this or that evening or class at Insight Santa Cruz. So then there are these last three places where you can rest the mind. Your own virtue, really important. Every one of you here has all kinds of virtue. You wouldn't be here if you didn't. And you have places where you've been awake and where you've kept the precepts and where you've lived in a way that's non-harming to yourself and to others. Ajahn Sumedho, again, likes to talk about being enlightened and acting in an enlightened way rather than getting enlightened or becoming enlightened. So you live as though you were enlightened. Live in a way that's not harming and really rest your mind in the in your virtue. Now when you keep the precepts, not harming, not taking that which is not given, not harming with your sexuality, not harming with your speech, not intoxicating body or mind, then when you do that, you are living in the geography of freedom. You are living in that realm where freedom is possible. And you can say the precepts as part of your everyday practice and and remember to tell yourself the stories the good stories of where you have not harmed it's really important to do that we tell ourselves every one of you could tell me all the bad stuff you've done right easily and and some of you have stories and i certainly have some of you know the bigger things that we've done in a lifetime that we've told over and over and over again how often do we get to tell each other the stories or tell ourselves the stories of the good things we've done? Very, very important. The places where we've held others in goodwill and in compassion and gladness, where, where, we've, where we've been very, very careful of all beings. You can rest your mind in this place. And then there's your generosity, you know, and the thing that I love about the teachings about generosity, you can, if you take a moment and you look back, maybe just in the last few weeks, to some generous act that you performed. Maybe you 
put some money in a street musician's, you know, violin case, or maybe you gave something to somebody who was homeless, or maybe you wrote it a check, or maybe you took the time to be present with somebody who really needed some time, and you were generous in that way. And you can still taste it. Isn't that fabulous? The taste of generosity, it said, lasts for a very, very long time. And it does. You know, I I have a couple of instances, one in which I just gave a little bit of money to some nuns who were at IMS one year when I was practicing, and there was a chance to offer them some money and or anything. And I didn't, you know, if you're on retreat, you don't carry a whole lot of cash with you. I didn't have much. But I gave them what I could. And I still remember what a joy it was. They had given us so much just by their presence. You know, it was such a joy to be able to offer something back. It's now uh, 20, 30 years later. I can still taste it. Isn't that amazing? So it's a place where we can rest the mind in that sweetness of that moment. And then the last thing is the devas. And you know, devas. I don't know about devas. You know, I'm, I'm always a little on the skeptical side. You know, devas are kind of like angels or spirits. They're heavenly beings. They live in one of the higher realms from the human realm. And some of you may be very comfortable with devas and have a daily acquaintance with you. I've often, when I've talked about them, someone will come up and say, I see devas all the time. So I think that's great if that happens for you, but it doesn't happen for everyone, and so some of the rest of us have to kind of take it on faith a little bit. And But what I think this particular one does is it points us back to the realm of the mysterious and the absolute and the unknowable. And that is also then, as we said before, it's a place where we can rest our mind. There's a lot we can't know. One of the things I do always want to remind us of is we do know that the picture is very, very big. And every day we know more and more. You know, recently astronomers were announcing that they had found evidence of the gravitational waves that were there at the Big Bang and they support the theory of an inflationary universe, and maybe it means that there is a multiverses, so there are many universes. I mean, this one's big enough, really. (laughs) Many is kind of even, you can't even think it, because we already knew that there are billions of galaxies and more billions of stars, and we know that time is really weird, and it's all tangled up in distance. I mean, time and distance are pretty much you know, the same thing. And we know that we, we are infinitesimally small. Infinitesimally small compared to that. Even on this planet. I am really sorry to inform you of this, but you are one seven billionth of the population. And your problems are one seven billion <laughs> of all the problems of the planet. You know, it, it gives you a kind of perspective that's really, really wonderful. And at the same time, it also reminds me that it's it's almost impossible to take in, and I don't have to take it in. You know. 
And it's okay to not understand it. In fact, the older I get, I was saying this to somebody today, the older I get, the happier I am to realize that I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what is ultimately true. I don't know what happens when I die. I have no idea why I'm here. I don't know what the plan is behind it all, or even if there's a plan. It doesn't matter, because whatever it is, I'm part of it. So it's okay not to know. And then that lets me begin to relax about some of the other views that hold me in such a small place. Waking up is not a part-time job. It's not something that you just do on retreat. It's not something that you do only in the morning or only at Insight Santa Cruz. It is absolutely a full-time job. It is an all-the-time job, morning, noon, and night. And so in your ordinary, everyday life, I invite you to begin to notice where you are imprisoned in views and opinions. And to begin to work with anchoring yourself in awareness in that which is simply awake, that sees clearly, and that can guide you in wisdom and compassion. You can do this every day in any situation. It's always possible to find that place where we can see clearly where there is at least less greed, hatred, and delusion, if not none. We just need to keep coming back to awareness. So I'd like to close with Ajahn Sumedho again. He says, Awareness is your refuge. Awareness of the changingness of feelings, of attitudes, of moods, of material change and emotional change. Stay with that because it is a refuge that is indestructible. It is not something that changes. It is a refuge you can trust in. The refuge is not something that you create. It is not creation. It is not an ideal. It's very practical and very simple, but easily overlooked or not noticed. When you're mindful, you're beginning to notice it's like this. So let's sit for just a moment and breathe. Just stay exactly as you are. Don't, don't, no need to adjust. Thank you very much for listening and enjoy walking in that beautiful night air. We'll be back in here at 9 o'clock for the closing sitting.